Please open your Bibles as we prepare to receive God's Word into the Gospel of uh, Matthew, chapter 21, Jesus' triumphant entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large cloud spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and then and had followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for your opportunity to gather here this day on this special Sunday as we remember your triumphal entry into Jerusalem to, Lord, to receive the sins of humanity. We ask you to bless this time and <clears throat> speak. bring your message boldly through Pastor Armando. Bless these tithes and offerings, Lord, as they, as they go forward, Lord, to do your work in, on the earth until you come again. Bless this day, Lord, and uh, the families that will be gathering to uh, to think about you, Lord, and 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 as we we all think about the sins that Lord you took them took them all went to the grave with them. Thank you for all you've done for us in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, before we go to prayer, I wanted to share a scripture with you because I think it really kind of brings to light uh, kind of a God put on my heart um, as we go to prayer every Sunday and we go before the Lord as individuals, but also as the corporate body of Jesus. There in in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says this, since then we have, in verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, so often we we live under a cloud of, of guilt. You know, we kind of look at our lives and maybe we reflect upon our lives and we find ourselves condemned. And yet the, the writer of Hebrews wants to remind us that we have a, this high priest in heaven who is, faith, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, really think about that. What is your weakness? You know, and that thing you're most ashamed of or that thing that you are so burdened with. And we think that Jesus is like, get out of my presence or, you know, oh, I'm so disgusted or the the big power word. I'm so disappointed in you. And yet Jesus looks at you and he goes, 
I sympathize with your weakness. And because I am a faithful high priest, I want you to boldly come into the throne of grace. To receive grace and mercy in a time of need. So on Sunday mornings, as we go to prayer, this is what we're doing. We're recognizing our weaknesses, our frailties, and we're just saying, and the Lord's like, if he accepts us, and we come into his throne room of judgment, condemnation, no. Like what he says there again, back there in Hebrews, he says you come into his throne room of grace to receive mercy. And again, and why can Jesus do this? He was sinless. And it's like what C.S. Lewis says, 33 years of being tempted and not sinning. Think about that. If 10 is the most difficult temptation to resist, 1 to 10, you know, I fall off about, you know, 0.5, you know, in temptation. And, and Jesus goes to 1, no problem, 2, 5, 8, 9, we're all out, right? We've all given in. He's at 10 and he's just not sinning. Can you imagine that? We probably, we probably realize that when we're on a diet, right? And we're trying, oh, the diet. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to just have a cheat day, right? I'm going to have a cheat day. Jesus stayed on the diet for 33 years and never had a cheat day. And then he says, I'm able to sympathize with your weakness. I get it. And, he, and he, the invitation is, let us, and I think, I like it in the New King James better than ESV. Therefore, therefore, we have this great high priest, therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to go to prayer. And I want you just to confess your sins. I want us to repent of our sins knowing that God is going to forgive us, knowing that we enter a throne room of grace and come with boldness, boldness, as you do this morning. And I'll close this out in prayer here in a second. Let's pray. So we do enter uh, Holy Week today as Jesus. We look back and we, we remember the triumphal entry of Jesus. We just taking a break from Mark for the next couple of weeks. And as we look here at Matthew 21, I just want to remind you that it's also in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, and also in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. I want you to keep in mind, too, as we enter Jerusalem with Jesus, that just, just, just a short time before, he has raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember that. So there's a great, remember, and Lazarus had been dead for four days. He had been in the tomb. So there's a great swell of enthusiasm and expectation that Jesus is the Messiah. That he's the long-awaited-for king of Israel. And there's this, just this great anticipation. Here is something very interesting, and keep this in mind. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's entering from the east gate, right? He's entering from the east gate. Coming in on the same day in the west gate is Pontius Pilate. He's coming again to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He's going to be in Jerusalem, not to celebrate it, but to be there. Because obviously it's a huge, a huge event. And he's the governor. So he's going to be there. He's coming in on a war horse. 
I really want you to keep this in mind. He's coming in on a war horse because that's how peace is brought in the world. Through war. Through the subjugation of the enemy. Through the getting your enemy under your thumb and and you control them as Rome has done from, you know, Germania all the way down to North Africa, right? To, to Britain and Gaul or France, you know, there and, and he comes and they control all the West through what? The power of the Roman military. And here comes the governor coming in on the West Gate on his war horse. And we see our king coming in on the east gate on a mule. I think that's kind of interesting, don't you? And keep this in mind also, that as Jesus enters this east gate, he is now drawing ever closer to the crucifixion. The final dominoes are falling now, these these last few days, as now what John had prophesied probably unknowingly, but as John had predicted, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away what? The power of Rome? Right? That's what the Jews wanted. That was their biggest concern. But Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the power of Rome. No. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Think about that. It's all coming now. It's all coming in this final week as He enters Jerusalem. He draws ever closer to the cross. He draws ever closer to carrying there the weight of our sin, of our guilt, of our shame. And He takes it upon Himself and doesn't end there. He also takes our punishment. As John the Apostle would say, He's the propitiation. The propitiation of our sin. What does that mean? He he takes the wrath. He takes the punishment of things he had never done or even thought about doing. And he takes it for us, each one of us. And I think this week, as we enter Holy Week, I love it. I love that the church calendar calls it Holy Week because it's a very Holy Week. It's a week that we set apart. And I really think it's a, it's a great week to really reflect, not just on the past. Let that go. Press on forward to, the, to, the, to Jesus Christ. We let go of the past and we press forward press forward into Jesus Christ and who God is calling us to be in holiness and compassion and mercy and grace and love and that this next year would be a great year of freedom from sin closeness to Jesus Christ. So again, as we celebrate the triumphal entry, it's a, it, we, we are celebrating a monumental occasion as we see Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and notice this, He allows the people to praise Him for the first time. He allows them to praise Him. And we're going to look at really three significant things about this. So again, as He, in verse 1 of chapter 21 of Matthew, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, keep in mind the crowd that's coming with Him is coming with Him from uh, Bethpage there where where Mary and Martha and Lazarus had been, and they're coming in with Jesus also and His disciples to the Mount of Olives. And again, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that the Mount of Olives, they would have seen Herod's temple. We now look at the Dome of the Rock, right? But they would have been looking at 
temple, uh, the Herod of Temple as they come down the Mount of Olives and draw closer to Jerusalem. And he, as they are on the Mount of Olives, he sends two of his disciples, it says, saying to them in verse 2, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, and a colt with her, uh, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and he will send them at once. I love that. So here's the thing. Why is this so important that Jesus rides in on a mule? Think about it. He's really making an emphasis upon the need that the disciples go and get a mule. Not a horse, not a stallion, you know, not this a beautiful Arabian, you know, white horse to come in on. That would be awesome, don't you think? I mean, it's, it's the same, it's the same question we've been asking of Jesus since he was born. Why a barn house instead of Rome? And the wonder of Rome. Why not? Or might not even Egypt, you know, a powerful, significant city of the world. No, he's born there in Bethlehem in a barn house with, with animals. Why? Well, it's the same thing again. He comes in. Notice what it says there in verse 5. Your king is coming to you. Humble. Humble. Why? Because this is part of the foundation of the kingdom of God. It's part of the character of the kingdom of God. Humility. Sobriety of mind. Not to get caught up in the wealth and the power and the prestige of the world. But we look at it through humble eyes. Knowing that this world is temporal. And that things of this world are passing. That's why. I, want, I think this is very interesting. R.C. Sproul said this in The Glory of Christ. It's a book I read years ago, but it's something he says that has always resonated in my mind, echoed. But he says this in his book, The Glory of Christ, talking about the triumphal entry. He says, among Jewish rabbis, there were those who believed that the Messiah would arrive in one of two ways, depending upon whether or not Israel was worthy of his appearance. If the nation was, were, if the nation were worthy, the appearance would be on clouds of glory. If the nation was unworthy, unprepared spiritually, then his coming would be the lowly means of riding on a donkey. Isn't that interesting? That this is what some of the rabbinical schools had taught about the Messiah. And it speaks volumes to where they were at spiritually. Where they were at spiritually. Now, I want us to see something. It says here, so this is the emphasis of the donkey, and it goes back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey? So we look back to the prophet Zechariah, and now as Jesus enters the, the east gate of Jerusalem, he's fulfilling the word of God. I want us to see that. So as Jesus enters, I want us to please keep this in mind. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is not taken off God, off guard by the betrayal of Judas. He is not taken off guard by the scourging he receives from Pilate. He is not shocked as they nail his hands and his feet into the cross and they crown him with thorns. He is not shocked or put off or, you know, amazed and, and bewildered by these things. He's not. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is setting in motion for the very reason that he came. And the nation itself 
is completely, completely unaware of what is going on. Spiritually, they are blinded by what? We could say the hardness of heart. That's been an obvious one as we've looked at the Gospel of Mark. But you know what they're blinded by? The temporal glory of the nation of Israel. That's what they're blinded by. As they are excited that Jesus is coming in and they believe because he has just resurrected a man that was in a tomb for four days and they're going and they've all heard the rumors of opening the eyes of the blind and casting out demons and causing the lame to walk. I mean, they've all heard the stories and they're just blown away and they're amazed and they're going, you know what? This is it. This is it. The one we've been waiting for. The one that's going to bring peace between God and man. No. One that's going to rid us of the enemy of Rome and reestablish the kingdom of David. And we are going to be great again. And we are going to dominate again. And we are going to subjugate all our enemies. We are going to do this. And because of their temporary view of the king of the throne of David and their inability to see beyond their temporal wants and desires they miss out on the huge spiritual blessing that Jesus Christ is bringing and I really thought about this as I studied and have you ever heard this with people well Jesus didn't answer my prayer to heal somebody and it was a passionate prayer it was a burdensome prayer or God, you know, allowed my marriage to fall apart. Or God allowed this. Or God allowed that. Or my job. Or I lost everything. And because of that, I don't follow Jesus anymore. Or I don't go to church anymore. Or I don't, even worse, I don't believe that anymore. And this is the same sin as the nation of Israel. It's temporal. Everything I just said was temporal. And we get so disappointed with God when He doesn't change our temporal setting. And believe me, when, when my son was ill, it was a storm. And my boat was being tossed to and fro on that lake. And I struggled. But the one thing that came out of that dark valley, the shadow of death for me, was that if my son was to be taken, it wouldn't be forever. And I didn't like it. Believe me, I don't even like saying that now. But that was the reality that hit me heavily. You could take my son right now, Lord, and it will kill me. But I still believe. Because this life isn't all there is. There's an eternity waiting. And see, if we're going to grow in our faith, I really want us to see this. If we're going to grow in our faith, we have to be able to pull ourselves out of this world and the thinking of this world and the importance of this world to us and get it in context to the eternal kingdom of God. We have to. Because if all we do is get lost in the political minutia of the chaos that we live in, and again, it could be the United States, it could be Britain trying to leave the EU, it could be any one of the nations as they're flooded with refugees from the Middle East, you could be just can go through a list of the problems of this world. And if we were part of that nation, we would be struggling, we wouldn't care about what's going on in the United States, we'd be caring about what's going on in our country, right? 
But the answer for the Christian is still the same. This is not your eternal home. Pilate's coming in on the west gate in the power of Rome. Jesus is coming in in the humility of heaven on the east gate. Are we missing out on who Jesus is because we're blinded by the temporal things in our lives? That's the question, isn't it? Am I blinded by the temporal things of my life and I'm missing out on the glory of Jesus Christ? Because these things are all so temporal. And they wanted the glory and the power of this world. They didn't want the humility of the sacrifice of the cross. That was not part of their economy and of their thinking. So as we look at this scripture again in Zechariah, say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast, a burden. Here he is. Is this is what you is this what you were expecting? Is this what you were expecting? I always tell people as we go through trials and tribulations, as believers in Christ, why are you shocked, brother? Did you, did you read a different Bible than the one I have? These were the things promised to us. Paul would say, through many trials and tribulations, we'll enter the kingdom of heaven. And now you're so discouraged. And we do, I get it. But he's able to sympathize with our weakness. We're going to, but man, yeah, it is hard. Yes, you're going to have to fight your way through. Yes, but look, you're entering the kingdom of heaven. That's eternal. That's eternal. And have you ever noticed how these trials and tribulations, how they humble you? We don't like that. Who likes being humbled? Who likes finishing second place? Who likes being a servant of all? Well, Jesus did. Number one. And we follow in His footsteps. But here He is. This is what we expected. And so, as we see and as we have the palms up today, and the, the palms symbolize. I want you to see this. It's only in the Gospel of John where John tells us literally they, they started cutting palm branches and they started laying them in front of Jesus and they're waving them. They're, it's, it's, just, it's an exciting time. It's very exciting. And they're waving these palm branches because they symbolize victory and triumph and peace. It's interesting because the peace, again, we understand in the world is through the, the conquest of our enemy, right? That's the peace that we have in this world. Jesus and the peace of heaven is accomplished through the sacrifice of the offended party. Do you see that? I always tell JWs when I talk this about this, if Jesus Christ is not God, we have no peace. Because an angel is not the offended party. God is the offended party. And God says, yeah, I'll take, the, I'll take it. I will make peace with my own sacrifice. And if he's not God, then we got nothing. You're wasting your time. But if he is God, then we have everything. So here is this peace that he brings to us. And they're waving the, they're, you see it. They're waving the palms and they're laying them down. And then the apostles get their cloaks and they put them on the mule. Mark tells us this. They're excited. They're like, because they're thinking the same thing everybody else is. This is it. And you can see Peter almost strutting. 
by the donkey going. And again, Peter, oral tradition tells us Peter's like 6'4", and the average height at that time was like 5'5". Five, five. So this guy looks like a giant. Can you imagine? It'd be like me walking next to Shaquille O'Neal, you know? You wouldn't even, like, he could step on me. And you see Peter walking next to the mule, and the other disciples like, yeah, we're with him. And they're putting their cloaks on the mule, then the people see that, and they begin to put their cloaks in front of the mule. And, they're, and look what they're saying there. So the disciples did as Jesus directed, and they brought the donkey to him there in verse 7, and the colt, and they put them on the cloaks, they put their cloaks, uh, and he sat on them. And most of the people spread out their cloaks on the road and others cut branches and John tells their palm trees from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means what? God saves. Another way it's translated is God Comma, save the king. Right? It's a prayer. God, comma, save the king. You remove the comma, God, save the king. It's praise now. And they're praising Jesus. And he is receiving it. But keep in mind, he had just wept over Jerusalem. He was going towards the highest point in Jerusalem, which is the Temple Mount. It's the highest point. Have you ever noticed, if you go to Europe especially, you'll see this. The church is usually where? On the highest point of the city. And you'll see this throughout Europe. In the town I lived in, in Estragon, the Basilica, was at the highest point of the city. You can't miss it. You're miles outside of Estragon and you see the Basilica. Beautiful. So Jesus is going to the highest point there in Jerusalem on this mule and he's about to cleanse the temple. He knows what's going on, but he's allowing the people to praise him. He's, he's allowing them. And keep in mind before, we saw you, know, you see it in the Gospel of John. When they were going to take him by force and make him king, what did he do? He, he hid away. He went by himself to go pray. Because they didn't understand what they were doing. They didn't understand his mission Brothers and sisters in Christ, never lose sight of your life. The moment you lose sight of your life is because you're losing sight of the mission of Jesus. It's not temporal blessing. It's not. If you think that's what it is, then you're going to live a, a life that is amiss. And then you'll judge others that are suffering. You will. What sin did they commit that that's happening? That was the that was the mindset of the rabbis, right? You have leprosy. Oh, what did you do? We saw it in John. I think John eleven. You'll see it. Who sinned? This man who was born blind or his parents? Someone had to blow it. That's why they're being punished. Just like neither. He was born blind for the glory of God. Why are you suffering? For the glory of God. Is it easy? Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> That's why. Don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of what God is doing, what God is going to accomplish. So he's allowing them to praise him for the first time as king, the son of David. Notice that, how they say that. Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he. Blessed is he. Now I want us to see just a few things here. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is taken from Psalm 118, verse 26. Psalm 118, verse, verse 26. And keep in mind that these psalms that, that, that is being quoted is a psalm of ascent. This is what the people sang as they came into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So this is a song of ascent. It's Psalm 118, verse 26. And again, it was sung by the people as they ascended toward the, uh, the temple of Jerusalem to worship. And they were inviting others to come and let's worship together. And they're, again, they're, they're, they're waving the bows. You see it. We have confetti parades, right? Well, we used to at least. Ticker tape parades. These, they have the bows and they're laying them down and they're singing and they're, it's festive, man. It's just festive. It's like the avocado festival. No, it's better than that. Uh, <laughs> but Jesus ascends now to the highest point. And this is interesting. This psalm that is being quoted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's also the same psalm where Jesus has already quoted, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So he, it's almost like God ties it there. It's, they're praising him as the king, the son of David, but Jesus is like, yeah, but you've rejected the son of David. But this is the cornerstone that our lives are going to be expressed from. Notice the second expression that they say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, this one comes representing Yahweh. Yahweh to us. And in this case, it's Yahweh himself. Remember what Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. I am. Again, referring back there to Genesis, the first expression. These are what the people are saying, and they don't even know what they're saying. The third shout from the crowd is, Oh, Hosanna in the highest, implied praise to Yahweh, who sits in the highest and who dwells in heaven of heavens. Now, here's the thing I want us to see. So right away, the first thing I want us to understand about this is that Jesus was setting his crucifixion in motion. He's, he's picking a fight. Why? We see it. What do the religious, uh, religious leaders do? They go into a panic. What are you doing? Why are you allowing them to say this of you? Do you hear what they're saying? And he says, man, if you shut them up, the rocks are going to cry out. This is the moment that those psalms were written for. This is the moment that they become a fruit into fruition. This is the moment. But notice, after this, two things that happen now. One, he has raised Lazarus from the dead. And two, he has allowed them to praise him as king. Their response is what? Let's kill him. We got to take this guy out. We got to take him out. Why? Notice this. We're going to lose our positions. If we allow this to continue, we're going to lose our positions. Rome is going to come down. So notice this. They know two things are happening. One, he's picking a fight with the Pharisees, but he's also picking a fight with Rome. He's allowing them to say he's the king. They say the Romans are going to come down and remove us. They're going to take us out if we let this happen. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's setting his crucifixion in motion, and the two groups, they're going to crucify him. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the Herodians, and the Romans are going to be the ones pronounce his execution. He knows this. But he's picking this fight because these things must happen. Yeah, here's the coolest thing I learned this week. Never heard this before. Maybe you have. Just just bear with me. Remember this. We're entering what week? 
Passover week, right? Passover is on the 14th. I want you to understand this. The Passover is celebrated on the 14th. But what is the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem? What day is it? The 10th. The 10th. What happens on the 10th in the Old Testament? Check this out. Maybe you already know. This will be a reminder to you. Remember this. Jesus said he had come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And I'm not going to act like I got this by my own. I got this from Matthew Henry. And he says this. The Passover was on the 14th day of the month. And this triumphal entry was on the 10th. The 10th day of the month was significant concerning Passover. We read in Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 and 5 and 6, it says this. This this is for you King James fans. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the 10th day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep, or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Think about this. As Jesus was riding in, the people were crying, Hosanna in the highest. Unbeknownst to them, they were selecting the Paschal Lamb for sacrifice. The one and only sacrifice that can take away the sin and cause death to pass over us. They were choosing their lamb on the tenth day. Isn't that wild? Yeah, but the Bible's just a bunch of random thoughts and it's made up by just all kinds of just people throwing stories together and just piecing it together like a puzzle. We've seen Zechariah and now we go all the way back to Exodus. And here it is. All happens to be on the tenth day. And keep in mind, Jesus is the one setting this in motion. He's the one who told the guys, go get me a donkey. Go get it. He knew the reaction of the crowd was going to be. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He knew what their reaction was going to be. He knew that the Pharisees and the scribes were going to want to kill him because of this. He knew that the Romans were not going to like it any more than the religious leaders. He knew all of this, and yet he keeps going to towards Jerusalem. He keeps going to that cross. So they're choosing their Paschal Lamb as they allow, as they, as they proclaim Hosanna in the highest. They're choosing their lamb for sacrifice. The third and last thing I want us to see about this, and it's obvious, Jesus was marching to his death, and he knew it. Remember what he says in John 12, 27. You could go there with me really quick, if you have your Bibles. 12, 27. Jesus says this. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus knew it. As we look at modern depictions of Jesus, he is confused, frightened young man who is bewildered by the response and the reaction of the people. Because that's how the world understands it. Who would choose suffering? Who would choose martyrdom if they had a choice? Nobody would. 
everybody would choose something else. But Jesus willfully submits to the will and the plan of God. He knew this was the hour that he came for, and he embraces it. Was it Again, he's troubled by it. He knows what he's going to face. He knows what he has to go through. And yet he still embraces it. He embraces it. Because this, he says within his own words, this is the hour. This is, I, guess I have come to this hour. This is it. We rejoice. We call it Good Friday, even though a terrible injustice is done on it. Why is it good? Because our Savior chose us. Think about that. Think about it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? You. I mean, if you happen to have a child, what do you endure for your child? For the joy of them, isn't it? No matter how troublesome they are, no matter how crazy they drive you, you endure it with joy. I married my niece yesterday. To be honest, that girl was a pill. She was a pill. She was. And I'm looking at her, and I'm like, you know, Michaela, I love you. I'm, I'm to be honest with you. If you guys get into trouble in this marriage, you might get a swift kick in the butt from me. So I'm gonna keep you going in this direction. Now you're going, and there ain't no getting out. And she's looking at me like, really? I'm like, oh yeah, really. Not so much worried about the groom. I'm worried about you. But again, for the joy, mom's glowing, dad's glowing as he walks her down the aisle. She was challenging, but now is the time for the joy. Jesus endures this terrible, terrible death. It wasn't even the physical death. That, that's nothing. It was the spiritual separation from the Father that he endured. Because he loves us. This is the very reason I came to this hour. So understand this. Your salvation is secure because this was God's plan from the beginning. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't that just it came about this way. God purposed it to come about this way. They chose their Paschal Lamb. He set his enemies in motion, knowing exactly what they were going to do and knowing when Satan's triumphing, thinking that he's won, this, that was the, the bell toll of his actual defeat. This is what we celebrate this week. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we want to thank you again. As we hear the crowds praising Jesus as he enters Jerusalem, Lord, we praise you now. If we were to remain silent, even the rocks would cry out. Lord, again, send us your Holy Spirit. Without him, we just don't understand these things. We don't. But with him, they become the treasure of our heart. So again, Lord, send a choice. Meet us at your table, Lord, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Good morning. Good to be here. Can you open in your Bibles to Matthew 28? Matthew 28, 18. And I promise that I'll get there eventually. I didn't hear my introduction, so I have no idea what you know about me. That's fine. You don't need to know very much. Um, oh, no introduction. Awesome. Okay, cool. So my name is Lauren, and I have been a missionary 
oh, since 1996 in Europe. Um, served with Armando. So yes, I do have Armando stories. Um, and he must really trust me because he's not even here to defend himself. Um, but now I'm in the UK, uh, working at the Bible College. Um, I pastored a church for 13 years um, in the UK. Uh, married happily three kids. Uh, that's enough about me. So anyway, let's go ahead and pray. And we'll uh, consider God's Word. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, your mercy. Thank you that you are a God of love and compassion. Lord, that your heart is that no one would perish, but that all would come to know you. And Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here this morning that that know you, that love you, that want to hear from you this morning. And ask that you would have opportunity, Lord, through your word, through, through me, a weak vessel to share your heart this morning. That you would do that by your spirit. So we commit this time to you and ask that, that you would work, that you would move. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So for several years, I, I, I pastored a church on the North Sea uh, there in England. And I could uh, walk from our church building in this place called Bridlington. I could walk from the church building along the sea uh, to my home. And many times I would do this late at night after, you know, a long Sunday or a long Wednesday evening, whatever it was. But I'll never forget this one particular winter night where the, the wind was up and the sea was a mighty torrent of black waves that were just crashing upon the shore and we have a harbor there and the waves coming over the, the harbor walls there. And it really wasn't, it wasn't a night for walking home, let alone being out on the water. But there were several lights from boats. I could see them there. They were bobbing up and down on the waves. And circling up above was a, was a helicopter. And it was fighting the winds because the winds were quite strong. And it had a, there was a searchlight and it was pointing down, lighting up there on the, on the dark waters below. And then on the shore, near the harbor, there, there were people. And they were standing there and they were wearing waterproofs and they're huddled together, and they're intently gazing out to the rough seas. They're looking this way, and they're looking that way, but they were just steadfast in their gaze on the water. Some had parked their cars, and they turned their, their lights on, the headlights on, just piercing out into the darkness over the waves. And you could, you could almost feel the intensity the extreme anxiety and tension of the moment. As these people were looking out into the darkness, what they were doing was they were desperately looking for life on the water. Looking out. Because a young fisherman had fallen overboard into those freezing and turbulent waters. He was only a short distance from the safety of the harbor, but in those waves and in the, in the swirl of the undercurrents, 
no one in their own strength could possibly swim back to safety. And so it was a, it was a desperate search, a race against time as the boat searched, as the helicopter was looking, as the people were peering out, looking on the face of the water there, because no one could last very long in those conditions. Now I saw this, and the only thing I could do was pray. So I prayed, and I continued my journey home with the sound of the wind and the waves, and you could hear the, the rotors of the helicopter blades in the, in the distance. And that scene is forever etched in my mind and my memory. And as I thought about that young man's plight, and as I have many times since, he didn't make it. There's a vivid physical picture of a very real spiritual reality. That outside of Christ, His forgiveness, that you and I, that we're very much like that young man, caught in those rough and dark seas. Do you remember what it was like before Christ? Do you remember that? It's good for us to remember. To remember what it was like to be trapped in spiritual darkness, in that blindness, unable to see the light of the, tr- the truth, being tossed to and fro by the lies of our adversary, by the, the devil, by the lies of, and lusts of our own flesh and the world. Drowning in our sins, as though chained because we were, with no possible way to, to set ourselves free caught in the undercurrent of the devil's plan for our our ultimate destruction. No way for us to swim to safety in ourselves. And destined for a fate, a fate far worse than drowning at sea. I hate being in the water. I love to look at it. But I almost drowned when I was 16. And that's like my worst nightmare. To go the way that that young sailor did or that fisherman. But you know, the sin that we were ensnared in, the ultimate judgment of that, far worse. To be under God's wrath, His wrath for an eternity. To be separated from His love, from His grace, His mercy, to be separated and to be under His wrath forever and ever and ever, and it doesn't stop. A destiny more horrifying than, than my words can, can ever express. And that was your state and mine outside of Christ. I, I lived 23 years without Him, and I know I, it's easy for me to remember what it was like. But then, in God's mercy and His grace, by some means, a hand it shot out. Or a, you know, a life ring, in a sense, it was, it was thrown your way. God, in His love and His compassion for you, He shared the only way of escape. That lifeline out into the dark, into that deadly torrent that you and I, that we were caught in. I don't know how it happened for you. Perhaps someone shared 
the gospel with you. A young man named John Malat at a surf shop in Pismo Beach shared the gospel with me. Or you read a tract. You were given a Bible. You were brought to church, but somehow you heard the words of truth. And you received the lifeline of your soul. Set free. You came to realize that God did not desire your destruction. Quite the opposite, that He wanted to give you life. To give you abundant life, eternal life. A living relationship with Him. That God wanted to give you Himself in relationship. That God knew that there was no way for you to to pull yourself out of that darkness, out of those deep waters of your sin. And so He sent His Son. I know you guys know this, but it's so good to be reminded. That He sent His Son, Jesus, taking humanity upon Himself and living that absolutely sinless life that you could never live, I could never live. And then amazingly, God who became man, He gave that life, that perfect life, to be cruelly put to death on the cross as that perfect payment, that perfect ransom for all of your sin and all of mine. All of it. And then He rose again on the third day. Proving that He's God. Victorious over sin, Satan, death, the devil. And that He freely offered you forgiveness of sins if you would only turn. Turn from your life of sin. Accept what He did for you as that substitute on the cross. Embrace Him as your Savior and experience newness of life in Him. And you did that. And forgiveness came. Sin and Satan's power, broken. That wage of eternal death that you deserve, forgiven. Abundant life now given to you. Now and for eternity, granted to you. This great exchange took place. That great rescue took place on your behalf. You were grabbed a hold of and brought to safety. Do you remember that day? Oh, I remember that day. And I remember seeing clouds and just going, wow, God, You made clouds! Those are amazing! Now, I've seen clouds many times before that. But I was under such a dark cloud before that. And so now, just this wonderful relationship of knowing the Creator who made even the clouds. Becoming truly alive as never before. Rescued in the safety of the Son. Absolutely amazing grace. In Christ... We're now safe. We're safe. And praise God for that. We can rest in Him, what He's done for us. But you know, we don't, we don't live in a, in a time of rest. Because there are multitudes all around us, all around the world, 
who are still in the darkness of their sin. They're still being tossed to and fro in those turbulent, deep, dark waters, still headed for a lost eternity. It's about 3.1 billion people that don't even have access to the Gospel today. This very moment. So what are we to do? How are we to respond? In Romans chapter 10, you can turn there if you want to. I'm going to be in Matthew 28, and then I'll be in 2 Corinthians. But Paul asks some questions too in Romans 10, verse 14 and 15. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now we have been saved. I'm trusting that you know Christ this morning. Been saved out of those deep, dark waters of our sin for a great purpose. Yes, to know and love God. To know Him personally. Experience a living relationship with Him now and forever. But then also another great purpose. To have beautiful feet. Feet are ugly. But to have beautiful feet in the sense of being willing to use those feet to go and share the good news with others. To throw out that very same lifeline that saved us to those who are currently drowning in the deep waters. That as we walk with God, He's invited us, that's a nice way of saying it, He commands us to join Him. To join Him in His great rescue operation. That's what God is doing. That's what He's doing and He's asked us to come along. Jesus gave us, the church, a commission. It's a command. And it's a heavenly given privilege to be able to actively participate in His great rescue operation. To intentionally and purposely share the gospel of salvation with those who desperately so need to hear it. Matthew 28, verse 18. You know, Armando forced me to teach my first Bible study when I was living with him in Hungary. And then after I taught it, and I was so thankful that I would never have to teach the Bible again, he was ill in the other room, but he was listening. He said, bro, I think you have the gift of teaching. So now you're going to teach every Wednesday night. So it's all Armando's fault, so you can blame him. <laughs> Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus speaking. Jesus who possesses all authority, both in heaven and on earth. In that very same authority, He's commanded the church, you and I, to go out into all the world proclaiming the good news of rescue to everyone who needs to hear so that they can be rescued too. Do you remember last year when that, when that, that young Thai football team, they went caving and they got stuck? And the whole world was watching in awe of like, how are we going to get these guys out? Great expense. Even a life lost in getting them out. A great rescue operation. But you know, God's doing something greater. It's been going on for a long time. And He's still actively at it even today. The greatest one that the world has ever seen and ever will see. Jesus says to go. To go in response to His command, but also the authority that He possesses. All authority. Now some of us are called to go a little bit further afield. Some of us, we're just going here in Fallbrook. The way it's written, it's, it's as you are going. So as you're going with God, wherever He calls you to go, He says, make disciples. That's the emphasis of the command. To make learners. To make followers of Jesus. And of course, we need to share the Gospel with them so that they can become a learner, a follower of Jesus. And you know, Jesus, He gives this command, and this is, I've heard this referred to as a, as a promise command sandwich. <laughs> In that, there's two promises. Those are the bread. Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and in earth. That's a promise. He has that. And then at the end of the, this, what we read here, He says, and behold, I am with you always. You're not alone. That's a promise. But then there's this command that's sandwiched in between. Go and make disciples. Go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So He gives us promises to fulfill the command that He's given us. And this has been planned and purposed in God's heart before time, before it even began. And we've been privileged to play a part in this. He's given us this privilege to be able to, to rescue souls that are drowning in the darkness of their sin, in depravity, in seas that are getting darker and dirtier and more dangerous by the minute. I mean, I heard about five minutes of the news this morning and that's all you need to get that the world is in a, in a state. Will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Going to look at another perspective of this. So 2 Corinthians 5, 16. Still hear a little pages turning, that's good. 
It says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We're not supposed to see people in worldly terms anymore. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, in making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin. who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God, working together with Him. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Now, this is a very rich passage. We'll just scrape the surface. going to look primarily at verse 20. There in verse 20, it says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And there's a debate among scholars who the we is actually, who Paul is talking about, we as in him and his fellow co-laborers, or we in, in regards to him and the Corinthian believers. Um, I believe it's more Paul and his co-workers, but then also it can be applied to the Corinthians as well because they too need to be ambassadors for Christ. And then in, coupled with the command that we're given there in Matthew that we have this call to, to share the Gospel with others. And so, so all believers, all disciples are ambassadors for Christ. Of course, Paul being a, a unique ambassador in his apostleship. But us today, that we have the privilege of, of being ambassadors for Christ. Wherever God calls us to go, whether it's here on the home front or if it's further afield, to be an ambassador. You know, ambassadors in the, in the Roman world, when, when Paul was writing this, not too dissimilar from ambassadors today. The ambassadors, their authority and their appointment, it didn't come from themselves, but it came from the authority and the, the power of the government that sent them. And as ambassadors, they were to present the message of their government as faithfully and clearly as possible, with sincerity. They weren't delivering their own personal message, perhaps for personal gain, but the message of their government. And they needed to be people who were reputable in their conduct, in their character, who could faithfully represent their country, especially in time of crisis, without adding to the crisis or causing a new one because of their misconduct. In ambassadors, they were, they were usually sent, as they are today, as a, 
a sign of friendship or, or goodwill between nations. To establish a relationship or an alliance or, or perhaps to restore one that had been fractured. There's been issues with Saudi Arabia and other countries lately. Ambassadors being pulled because the relationship's broken. And ambassadors, they were generally exempt from imprisonment by their host nation. If their host nation mistreated them, their own government would respond, if possible, with greater retribution. Similar today. One thing that was different in their day is it wasn't often a designated position that was paid by the government, but many times ambassadors were just those of the, of the elite of that country who were asked to perform this duty and they did so because they saw it as an honorable thing to do. They would even do so uh, paying many of the expenses out of their own pocket because they just wanted to represent their country in this way. And this ambassadorship, it was a position and still is one that is supposed to command respect. You know, refusal to receive a Roman ambassador was seen by the Roman Senate as grounds for war because it was disrespecting the nation. And of course, usually weaker countries were very quick to send their ambassadors to stronger nations, such as Rome. Caesar Augustus, he boasted about how many ambassadors were coming to the Roman Empire. Them coming first. Because it showed how powerful the Roman Empire was. How strong it was. Because they were coming to them or him. Okay. So we're ambassadors for Christ. How does this apply? You know, our appointment and our authority to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to share that, that lifeline to a drowning world, it's not from ourselves. It's not from our church. It's not from a missions board. It's not from a committee. But it's, it's given by God Himself. It's by His authority. It's by His authority, as Jesus says in the Great Commission, and by His authority as the glorified Christ who has all authority in heaven and in earth, that we have been given the authority to share the good news of the Gospel. Paul describes that authority in verse 18. Here. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God has granted us the authority to share the Gospel. The message of reconciliation. The message of reuniting 
restoring a broken relationship between man and God. He's given us that authority. And if God has given us that authority, that privilege, the command, the commission to be His ambassadors of the Gospel, how confident should we be in that? If it's a command of God, and He's given us the authority to do it. Is there any authority that's greater than His authority? Hmm. Any country? Any person? Any spiritual host of wickedness? No. He's above all. And He has the authority. And He's given us the authority to share the message. You and I, we have been given authority as ambassadors of the Gospel. And it comes from the, the highest authority that there is. And you know, sometimes we, we lose sight of that. We forget. We're intimidated by the things going on around us or the people around us. But may that truth ring home in your heart and in mine that God has given you the authority to share the Gospel. It doesn't matter what people say, what government says. And you know, just as ambassadors of nations were sent not to proclaim their own message, but that of the country or the nation that sent them by, by their authority, so too as God's ambassadors, we've been entrusted with His message. It's His. It's not ours. It's His Gospel. And earthly ambassadors, they needed to present, and they still do, to present these messages of their nation faithfully and with sincerity, as though they believed the message sincerely themselves. Now God warns, He he lets us know, that there are people who will disregard the message. They see it as foolishness. They see it as a message of death, only to be rejected. That people will make fun of us, that they will despise us for it, so that they themselves can continue to drown in their sin. It's irrational. It's crazy on their part. But that's the reality of it. It's tragically true. But even though they want to reject it, that doesn't take away from the authority of the message. There is no greater message. There is no more sincere a message. There's no other message that can redeem lost souls from the uttermost darkness than the Gospel. John Wesley, the great preacher that he was, he came to my town where I served, Bridlington. He said of Bridlington, I have not preached to such a stupid and ill-mannered a congregation in many a year. Now I repeated that to a man who was attending our church who was named John Wesley. He was a descendant. He was a, had been a paratrooper in World War II. And I shared that with him, and he laughed, and he said, not much has changed. 
And after being there for 13 years, I could say amen to that. But John Wesley, one time he was asked, he was asked, why do you so often preach on the text in John 3 that you must be born again? And his response was, because you must be born again. It's a necessity. People need to know. They need to know. There's no greater message. And what a joy it is when we get to be a part of sharing that message with others and they receive it. Paul wrote, you're familiar with this, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That word power, that Greek word is what we get our English word dynamite from. It, the Gospel is powerful. The only message that can save a lost sinner. We don't need to apologize for the message. We don't need to water it down. We don't need to make it more powerful in a world that wants us to. What we need to do, and what I need to do, I preach as much to myself, is that we need to believe the message. We need to believe it, believe its sincerity, that it is God's message. It's according to His wisdom. It's according to His power. And it's backed by the most sincere person that there is. God Himself. A sincere message that we have graciously been entrusted with to sincerely and lovingly share with others. Now you and I, we were saved when we heard that message. Most likely, the actions of another of God's ambassadors. Few of us encountered the Gospel without a human instrument involved. It, it happens, but most of us heard it from somebody. And you know, may we believe that God can save others through us just like we were saved through someone else sharing with us. That it's still the same message. It's still just as powerful. It can still save those who are currently drowning, those who are without hope, those who are sinking in those deep waters of sin, that we would share it with sincerity. So too, a nation's ambassador, as I said before, he was supposed to be of good character and conduct as they represented their country to another. And in Christ, we are to seek to live lives that match our profession of faith. Lives that do not tarnish our God-empowered God empowered and appointed ambassadorship. Now, God's not expecting perfection. He knows you better than that. And He knows me better than that. He knows the weakness of our frame. But He does want us to be sincere. That our lives would reflect where our ambassadorship comes from. And it comes from our true citizenship. Linked to that. It's from God and linked to His kingdom that is coming. That we are citizens of in Christ. That we are ambassadors of another world. The world to come. A kingdom that is coming. A kingdom that is known for its love and its grace and its purity, its righteousness, its holiness.
that we would have lives that reflect that. Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. To the Thessalonians in chapter 2, he wrote, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Paul himself, he records how he sought to live an exemplary life in order not to tarnish his ambassadorship here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments. Sounds fun, huh? Riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. That he shared in sincerity and he shared in love. And in those verses that we just read, we, we, we catch a glimpse of the fact that God's ambassadors, unlike other ambassadors, that they're not exempt from imprisonment and mistreatment. Now we have a position of, of honor before God as His ambassadors, but it is not often recognized or honored by this rebellious world. The prince of the kingdoms of this world, he doesn't play fair, nor does he desire to accept the authority of the high king of heaven nor to His representatives. He doesn't want to receive what we are seeking to do. So He seeks to oppose God's kingdom by opposing us, God's ambassadors. But His efforts are ultimately, they are futile. The victory is already the Lord's. Now we may suffer for proclaiming the message, but it's not in vain. It's not in vain. And it's temporary. The the suffering, the, the discomfort, it's passing. And our King who sees all and knows all, He will ensure that we will be rewarded for what we may suffer in His name. And He is also going to ensure that He who opposes us will be rewarded for His misdeeds. Paul who suffered much, living out his ambassadorship, he put things into perspective in chapter 4, verse 17. He wrote, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, all those are eternal. Now as we begin to close here, having saved the best for last, noted how typically it was the weaker nations, and it's still this way, that are quick to send ambassadors to the more powerful ones. It's logical because they fear the more powerful ones. But in our text here, in verse 20, that's not what God has done. 
Who is the greater power? God is. He's the greater power. Yet He is the one who sends the ambassadors. He's the one sending. Does He need to be reconciled to us? No. We need to be reconciled to Him because of our sin. But He's the one in His great love and in His compassion for us, He's the one that initiates the reconciliation. Firstly, by sending Jesus to secure the avenue by which we could be reconciled, could be saved. Secondly, by sending His ambassadors, people like you and me, to share the Gospel with those who need to hear it. To hear the message that saves. And Paul, here he paints a compelling picture for us. Back to verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He paints this picture of Almighty God is appealing, that He's earnestly pleading, that He's imploring. That word, it literally means to cry out, to beg people to be reconciled to Him. Why? For God so loved the world, because He is love. He gave His only begotten Son. But whoever will believe upon Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Because He loves, He pleads, He shares, He gives His Son. God is incredibly compassionate. We see His heart here. That the all-powerful One is pleading with the weak. He's pleading with those who are dying and drowning in their sin to accept the offer of reconciliation, to be saved. He's pleading with them. And He wants to plead through you and I. And your people can see when you're real. They can see it. And they know. They can see a compassionate heart. And they're impacted by it. God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Speaking to Israel specifically there, but we see uh, his heart for the world is like that. And God wants to use us as His ambassadors to plead, to extend His offer of reconciliation to those who are drowning in their sin and in their darkness. That they would receive salvation and become His disciples. He has great compassion for the lost. And He desires to equip us with His compassion to throw out that lifeline so that they too may be saved. You know, maybe... I mean, we get distracted by all kinds of things. We forget where people are going. You know those people at Walmart that kind of, you mean, where are all those people in Walmart going when they die? 
we forget. Maybe we've been distracted or maybe our compassion is low. We become dull to the, the reality of, of where people really wind up. And if that's the case, that we would ask God for a, a fresh vision of the reality of things. And then also for a fresh filling of His Spirit and His heart and His compassion for the lost. Because they are truly lost. When I first moved to the United Kingdom, I found this old, beat-up, tattered book from Victorian times. had the title, A Passion for Souls, by J.H. Jowett. And I thought, you know, I need a passion for souls. And J.H. Jowett, he writes just this little bit from the book. He writes, My brethren... I do not know how any Christian service is to be fruitful if the servant is not primarily baptized in the spirit of suffering compassion. We can never heal the needs we do not feel. Tearless hearts can never be the heralds of the passion of God's love. We must pity if we would redeem. We must bleed if we would be the ministers of the saving blood. And so this morning, a reminder of what God has done for you and what He's done for me. But then also the privilege that we have to be God's ambassadors. To be those vessels that can be used to share the only message that can save. And then as we are going, wherever God calls us to go, that we would seize the opportunities to share. Because the time is short. Many are drowning in that great sea of darkness. And as it says here, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Can I pray for you? And for me? Father, thank you so much for your heart that You are a God of compassion, that You are a God of reconciliation. Thank You, Lord, that You love the world, that You love people, and that You desire that people would turn and embrace You as their Savior. And Father, I thank You for my brothers and sisters here who know You. They love you. They have experienced your love. Lord, I ask that you would give them, give me, a fresh vision of, of your heart for the lost around us. That you would use us to share the message, the only message, that leads to salvation. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.